0: here with an opening prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our community and our friendship, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here to draw our hearts together into you and, and towards one another and uh, enlighten our minds and inspire us so that we might understand your word and, and, and delight in it and rejoice in it and be strengthened to obey it. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. For we know that all the Scriptures point towards Him. Amen. Amen. Sorry, that was a premature ending of the prayer there. you You know you're Catholics when as soon as you say Jesus Christ, everybody says, Amen. The other, the other Catholic trick is to start with the sign of the cross. Of course, all the parents with the little well, kids know that, right? They pick that up. But the priest, it starts with the priest, so that's our way of manipulating people. So if we get okay, I can get everybody to shut up if I just begin in the name of the Father. You know. So we're on our 10th study. We've gone ten, 10 sessions here. I don't know if everybody's made all of them, but uh, there's a real progression. We're going through these different figures in the history of salvation. And we're in Moses right now. And uh, we're kind of slowing down. If we thought we were going slow last time, we're going to slow down even more here. But what's fascinating, though, I find these... Uh, what I'm trying to do is tie together the Old and the New Testament. So many people say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't know what the Old Testament has to do with me. right?" And you've seen, we've done ten studies of just the Old Testament. But we've seen in the Old Testament how in each of these studies how much it's tied into the new testament in in many many ways and many facets it's tied in the new testament you guys are more than welcome to come on up front um, yeah cuz we got the uncomfortable chairs or the uncomfortable chairs here so you see. uh so we find we find the two testaments linked together and, you know, we're really, we're just studying the Old Testament. I mean, I think at some point, we might study the New Testament, but I don't know. I mean, the thing is, we're studying the New Testament through the Old Testament, and that's the whole point of the course, is we're connecting the two. And, uh, by the end of this whole course, I don't want any of you to say, what's the Old Testament? How is that relevant? Like, why is that important? Um, and so, we're, we're seeing that. So, for example, who, who would have thunk it that the, ch- the word church, the word church, it goes back to Mount Sinai. And this experience of the children of Israel coming out to meet God who's going to come down on top of Mount Sinai and give the law. And he, when He pronounces the Ten Commandments and He does it in this really powerful fashion and uh, there's lots of... Uh, um, weather phenomena, lightning and darkness and clouds and all of this stuff going on. It's a real it's a real kind of special effects show. And uh, and he the the Israelites hear God's voice booming from the heavens and booming from out out of the midst of the fire and the mountains on fire and the voice is coming out and and God recites the 10 commandments. And it's that moment that Israel uh, in in a special way, becomes a unified community, becomes the nation of Israel, becomes the people of God, and becomes Israel uh, uh, as as they would be known for the rest of their history. It's that moment, and that's when they become church. That's when they become the assembly of God, and that's where we Christians. I mean, our our. Christianity, the Christian church, the whole word, it all goes back to that moment. That's the day of the church. And it was a prefigurement of, of us. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about that. We don't, you know, and rightly so, we don't really have very high opinions of ourselves, but it's like, this is what God was doing all of that for. It was for us Christians. It was for the Christian church. It was for the church of Jesus Christ. All of that foreshadowed... Um, Uh, our dispensation, the dispensation we live in right now as members of the body of Christ. And uh, something I'll get into, I'll point out briefly when we start getting into the study tonight, is uh, there's a a very ancient Jewish tradition and then many of the ancient Catholic theologians pick up on this and carry it on. That um, the day of the church, the day of the assembly, when God gives those Ten Commandments out loud with His voice booming from the midst of the fire um that was a specific day on the Jewish calendar it was the day of Pentecost. And so it's that same day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes down and the church becomes the Christian church becomes itself in a certain sense it's realized. And uh so that, that was the day of Pentecost that's a tradition there's no I don't know if you can really see that clearly in the Bible but it's a Jewish tradition. And as we see, and that's another interesting thing I'm showing you, you'll see it more, is that I draw from Jewish tradition as well as from Christian tradition because they both they both dovetail. I mean, that shows you that God's providence and His control is over not just the formation of the Old Testament, but the formation of the people, the Old Testament people of God as a whole, and even Judaism and the ancient Jews and their traditions. When, the, when their traditions somehow fit hand in glove, with truths that are revealed in the New Testament dispensation, it, it, the only explanation for that is that the, tradition, the Jewish tradition itself was being guided by God. Now, not all of it, of course, because an, a, a good portion of the Jewish tradition was condemned by Christ, but other elements of the Jewish tradition Christ embraced and, and confirmed. Um, and then subsequent Christian tradition would embrace and confirm. So here we are. Uh, the first study of Moses was Moses and the Day of the Church. Okay? The second study, we're gonna focus on Moses and the Law of Life, and then the next one, the third one on Moses, is gonna be, uh, well, it's gonna be kind of an explanation, uh, and a rationale for this second study. And this is a very subtle point, and there's a lot of theology, kind of a subtle theology, to what's gonna be going on to this this session and the next session. And the concern that I have that I've had for many, many years is how to explain the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament law of the Gospel. And uh, what we have um, very clearly when you read the New Testament, I started off reading kind of mostly the New Testament like most people do, and I became very cognizant that St. Paul taught repeatedly all throughout his epistles, and that was the main fight that he fought was that the Old Testament law is done away with um, in Christ, and uh, the Old Testament law was given uh, to the Old Testament people of God in a in a very uh, temporary fashion, and it had a had a couple functions. Like one of the functions it had was to draw attention to their sinfulness, so that they would know that they would need that they needed a, a savior and someone to come and redeem them from sin, um, and that the Old Testament law was the dispensation of condemnation and not the dispensation of salvation. I mean Paul uses very strong language like that all throughout his epistles. And Christ himself in the gospels sometimes is contrasting the old and the new, although it's less subtle with Christ, but but very strong with Paul. Um, and so then I read passages in the Old Testament that seem to say the Old Testament law is life giving and salvific. So I think to myself, is there a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how, how do we make sense of this? Okay. So between this session and ne- next session, my overall, my overriding concern is to try to make sense of that. Okay. And we're going to see how, how that happens. So I start off this, um, this one with an image of Moses. Okay. This is a famous, uh, pen and ink drawing from the 19th century. I, I can't remember the artist's name, but it's Durer or something like that or Durand or something. Some, I think he's a Frenchman. And he's got dozens upon dozens of these really famous pen and ink uh drawings of the Bible, various scenes throughout the Bible, and they're beautiful. So this is a famous one, they're very, very dramatic, very noble. And you have Moses now. So so far, you know, we've got the day of the church, the day of the assembly. God has spoken in Ten Commandments, and immediately after that, the people of Israel say, Moses, uh You know, you speak to us, and let not God speak to us, because we're afraid of for our lives. We're afraid that we're going to die. That's how frightening and fearful that that event was to them. And Moses says, "Okay, that's what I'll do." And so Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and he receives an initial um, kind of a, a dispensation of the Old Testament law, more extensive than just the Ten Commandments. And he brings that back down. That's called the Book of the Covenant. It's like a scroll. He basically brings a scroll back down. And then, uh, the next day with the children of Israel, he, he enters, the, there's a, a ritual by which the people of Israel enter into the covenant, the Old Testament covenant, in a, in a formal way. And so it's a very beautiful scene, and we're gonna study that, not next session, but the session after. And Moses has all the, these young men come and they sacrifice these animals. And then he takes the blood, and there's an altar set up, and he, he splashes the blood on the altar, and then he splashes the blood on the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant by which you know God has sanctified you, so forth and so on. And it's actually really a prophetic foreshadowing of the Eucharist and of the sacrifice of the Mass. And, and Christ, when he institutes the Eucharist, he draws directly from that scene. And then after that covenant takes place, the blood sacrifice, they go up on the mountain and they eat a meal with God. So it follows the the Eucharist follows it. So there's the Last Supper, there's the Eucharistic sacrifice, and then we receive communion. And that goes back to that moment there of Moses and the people. It's foreshadowing uh, the new covenant, and uh, the new covenant in Christ's blood in particular. So that happens and the children of Israel enter into this formal covenant and they say, everything God has said, we will do. That's what they say. They make that promise. Okay? It's a lot like the promises we make at our baptism. Okay, and a lot of times what we, we, we don't live up to our, our baptismal promises. And so also the children of Israel, Moses goes up the mountain again, but this time he's gone for a long time. He's gone for 40 days. And he doesn't eat or drink. And he's there and there's all these Jewish traditions about how he's communing with the angels and he's receiving all these revelations from God. And so God gives him all of this, a huge portion of the law. He reveals a huge portion of the law to Moses. Now when he's done, God writes it on the tablets. He writes the Ten Commandments on these stone tablets. And so Moses comes down from the mountain and what have the children of Israel done? They made an idol. They, They made an idol. Okay, and so they're worshiping the golden calf. And that's their fall from grace. And that mimics Adam and Eve in the garden receiving the commandments. And that commandment is going to be the condition by which they remain in God's friendship. But they break that commandment and they fall. And so so and so then they're expelled from the garden. So also There's a covenant that the people of Israel enter into. They say, we're going to do it. Okay, We'll obey everything God says. Moses goes away. They worship the golden calf. And so there's a fall, just like Adam and Eve. And then there's a a period of penance and repentance that takes place. And our sacramental economy is kind of framed on this. We've got baptism, but we also have penance. Um, This also mirrors the larger history of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel goes into the Promised Land. They're there. Everything's happy, uh, ha- ha- um, you know, ha- happy-go-lucky, and everything's all hunky-dory. That's the word I'm looking for. Everything's. I was looking for a real technical word. Was, you know, everything's hunky-dory. And but little by little, unfortunately, the children of Israel fall into idolatry, and eventually, and God sends the prophets over and over again for a course of hundreds of years and they don't listen. The northern, Israel, the northern kingdom gets knocked down, then God knocks down the second uh, kingdom and expels them from the land, so you get to exile. So just like Adam and Eve disobeyed and were expelled from paradise, so also Israel was expelled because they were not able to live up to the law. But then Christ, who's the God-man, comes and He fulfills the law in a perfect way for us uh, so that in Him we're able to be reconciled to God and to to do what we were supposed to do right from the beginning to do what Adam was supposed to do from the beginning to do what the children of Israel were supposed to do right from the beginning um and so that's that's the big picture of salvation history but it's always these uh these cells within a cells within a cell it's like you know in our body it's interesting because any cell in our body holds the code to the rest of our body and that's kind of how like when you read the bible it's like that you you read a little passage and that passage contains the entire Bible in that little passage. It's got the DNA. It's like the genetic code is found in all the cells of the Bible. They reflect the entire picture if you look in the right in the right manner. So this is the law of life. Today I'm going to focus on how the old... T- I'm going to start in kind of a counterintuitive or non-Christian way. Like a lot of the Jews... If there is Jewish... Uh, uh, brothers and sisters here, the Jews will be like, yeah, right on, right on, wh- what I'm about to say. Okay, because it's very, I'm going to really pump up the law, the Old Testament law right now. And I'm going to show you how it is a means of sanctification and grace, um, which, it, which is also taught in the New Testament, but only in very subtle ways. It's mostly taught in the New Testament that it's uh, uh, um, the law, a law of condemnation and not grace. But I'm going to focus on grace. And that's why I got this picture of Moses and what's coming out of his head. Like, it's like it's lights, okay? So it's a glory. So it's a sign of grace. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that more. So here, this is slide, for those who are listening, uh, this is slide three here. So if we can open up our Bibles, we'll have someone read here 20 verses, and then we'll cut it in half here. So let's go to Syrac. Cyrac was written as what is uh I, I say this to almost every book of the Bible, so don't believe me, but it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, so if we want to go to Cyrac seventeen, Cyrac is a wonderful book because it's very late. It's written very late. It was probably written around the year maybe two hundred uh BC. And so most of the Old Testament was written by then, and uh it's a commentary almost. On the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament book, commenting about an Old Testament book. In that Bible, I'm not sure. 712. Um,
1: 712
0: in that Bible, yeah.
1: Thank
0: you. Okay. Okay, now we need some brave volunteers. How about we have someone read the first ten verses? We'll wait till everybody's there. We'll do. Is there another name for it? Uh, it could be Ben Sira. Oh, you be near mm-hmm. the it could be Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiasticus. Sarrac, you want to do seventeen?
1: It should be near the
0: middle. <coughs> 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 Thank you. You're very welcome. That's why you get to sit. You sit up front. You get help from me. So, Father, I got a question. Yeah.
1: I'm not making excuses for Adam and Eve.
0: Yeah. I'm just trying to understand.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So God gives them a commandment to behave. Yeah. And then the devil comes in, who's more powerful than Adam and Eve. Yeah. And persuades them. Sure. Now I'm not making excuses. Oh, but I'm trying okay. to understand. I'll, that that's not an even match, Adam and Eve
0: against the devil. So probably in a certain sense, yeah, you yeah, know. And the same thing with the kids and the calf, even more so. Wow, how so? The how so with the golden calf?
1: Yeah, yeah. what do the kids know?
0: Well, the kids, I mean, they're Israelites. They're adults. oh <laughs> Moses wasn't just bringing, you know, fourteen-year-olds out of out of Egypt. You know what I mean? He was bringing. <laughs> well, it's just children, so I'm. Oh, I see. You know, the Children of Israel. Oh, 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 I get you. No, no, that's it. That's a, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the children of Israel. What do they know? They're just children. You know, they they know. Children. know, you know they they, he's got to have mercy on those kids. It's you know? shiny. Whew. Okay, so uh, someone reads Sirach seventeen one through ten. Can we have a brave volunteer? Go ahead, Charlie. <laughs>
1: The Lord from the earth created man, and in his own image, he made him. How many days of life he gave him, he gives him, and makes him return to earth again. He endows man with the strength of his own, and with power over all things else on earth. He puts the fear of him in all flesh, and gives him rule over beasts and birds. He forms men's tongues, and eyes and ears, and imparts to them an understanding heart. With wisdom and knowledge he fills them. Good and evil he shows them. He looks with favor upon their hearts and shows them his glorious works, that they may describe the wonders of his deeds and praise his holy name. He has set before them knowledge a law of life as their inheritance.
0: Okay, that's good. Yeah, so first ten verses there. All right, excellent. So Ben Sirah, who's like this kind of a rabbi, basically the author of this book here, is a Jewish teacher of the law. He is commenting, essentially, on Genesis. And so we're learning... Uh, about Genesis, more about Adam and Eve and their creation and their their original constitution. And you can see they have a very exalted, so the first human beings had a very exalted position over creation. God endowed them with strength like his own. He made them in his own image, the image of God, very, very important concept all throughout the Bible. He made them in his own image um, and he made for them tongue and eyes, he gave them ears and a mind for thinking. So the image of God in man has to do primarily with our the spiritual faculties. That is first and foremost our intellect, then also our free will. Okay, so the image of God, it has to do with more than that, but that's kind of a, the root foundation. That's what makes us specially in the image of God as opposed to Fido, you know, or your gerbil or something, you know what I mean? It's not just a difference of you know, and this is a philosophical issue, and philosophical argument I've spent many years studying this issue, but many people want to say there's really just a difference of degree between uh other animals and the human animal. And then others will say, No, no, I mean the classic position, not just not just the Christian position, but Jewish Muslim, but many phil- ancient philosophers as well, pagan philosophers, you know, it's a philosophical position, not necessarily a religious position, but there's a difference of kind between human animals and other kinds of animals. And that difference is one of reason. And that we possess reason, animals don't. So that human intelligence is not just uh, you know, the, say a primate intelligence kind of like really souped up or something. It's, it's a, There's a difference of kind between the two. And I think you can argue that philosophically. I'm not going to do that right now, but it's a philosophical question and it's also revealed to us by God as well. So we know that it's true as well from our religion. So, but this is what makes us in the image of God. Now we go on here in verse 11, and in the verse 11 something something subtle happens here. Okay, so I'm just going to read from say 11 to, uh, you know, maybe I'll read 11 to 14. So we're learning about Adam and Eve. We're learning at least about the first human beings. Okay, but then Ben Sira goes on and he says he bestowed knowledge upon them and allotted to them the law of life. He established with them an eternal covenant and showed them his judgments. Their eyes saw his glorious majesty and their ears heard the glory of his voice. And he said to them, "Beware of all unrighteousness," and he gave commandments to each of them concerning his neighbor. Something subtle has happened between verses 1, 1 and 10 on the one hand and verses 11 14 on the other, the same subject, these human beings who were there in the beginning, are now basically the Israelites who are receiving the law at Mount Sinai, the law of life, covenant for for eternity, and he made them see his glory and hear his voice. So this is now referencing the day of the church, and it's putting into parallel this event on Sinai with the actual creation of the first human beings. And so, in effect, what the scripture here is teaching us is that at this moment, on the day of the church, when God spoke the Ten Commandments to, uh, the children of Israel, it was like He created them anew. It was like a new creation. It was like a return to the Garden of Eden before the fall. There was a restoration of the grace that man possessed, and that special position that he enjoyed that special friendship he enjoyed with God was reestablished on the day of the church. It's very subtle, but I think that you know it bears the truth of it bears it out when you read on. So, but notice though that the Old Testament law is called the law of life. Now Paul in 2 Corinthians calls it the, calls it the the um, the law of condemnation basically. Okay? So, how are we going to reconcile these two things? So I'm going to focus first on the law as a giver of life, as a sanctifying agent. Uh, and then we'll talk about how, uh, the Pauline and the New Testament doctrine can be reconciled with that. So, here's more about the law of life. If we go to, uh, let's go to Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book in the Bible. Okay, why don't you read just uh, Deuteronomy 1 through, uh, 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3.
2: God's care. Be careful to observe all the commandments I enjoin on you today, that you may live and increase and may enter in and possess the land which the Lord promised on oath to your fathers. Remember how the 40 years now, for 40 years now, the Lord your God has directed all your journeying in the desert, so as to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments. He therefore let you be afflicted with hunger, and then fed you with manna, a food unknown to you and your fathers, in order to show you that not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the
0: Lord. Okay, so man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And so you have the word of God, it's life-giving, and obedience to it is life-giving. Alright, and that's a, a, a very fundamental teaching of Deuteronomy. Now we go to chapter 45. Does Deuteronomy have 45 chapters? I'm thinking that's a misprint. Yeah, that's a misprint. Maybe it's 30? No, it's not 35. Maybe it's Maybe it's 15? No. Okay. 25? Oh, ah, strange. was a mistake on my part. Let me try to guess. That looks like it's chapter 30, maybe it's 34.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay, we're not going to, it's gone.
1: What's next to the the, uh, four on the keyboard?
0: Uh, five. <laughs> no. I, okay. Well, I, I know the passage basically from memory. What what God is doing here in this passage in Deuteronomy is He's saying, "I set before you this law, okay, and you have good and evil. You've got cursing and blessing. Remember this the theme of blessing that goes back to Abraham. It goes back to Genesis. You know." where God curses the uh, the serpent and He curses Adam and Eve. And there's, a, there's a curse that comes about as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. So you've got cursing and blessing. You've got evil and good. You've got death and life. And that's a, that's a big theme. And what God is teaching in Deuteronomy, he says, obedience to my law leads to life. And it's really not, we can't reduce it just to life as a natural life. But it's eternal life. It's salvific life. It's life with God, um, supernatural life in our soul. But it also has to do with natural life. So part of it is, if you go into this new land, you go into the, the, the promised land and you obey the law, you're going to have a prosperous time. And your cities are going to be built. You're going to have children. They're going to be healthy. And your livestock is going to be good. And your, your enemies are not going to be able to get the best of you. And so there's life that's promised in that sense, uh, but there's also it's it's a supernatural life. Now, conversely, we have to understand even right now in our dispensation with Christians, oftentimes there are temporal blessings that do come to us through obedience to God's law. It really, it still is a truth. Um, uh, we focus a lot on on uh, as Christians. We focus a lot as we should because of Christ as our example on poverty and on suffering. And that's a huge theme, but it's also the case, that it really is the case, there are spiritual blessings, sorry, there are natural blessings that come to us by obeying God's law. So that those Old Testament promises, they're still true to a certain extent. It's just that in specific instances, God will deem it better for a person's spiritual growth to not give them blessing, temporal blessing, but he'll give them temporal hardship because it's better for them spiritually. It's better for them eternally in the, in the long run. But uh, kind of the principle still stands, it still holds true that there is natural blessing that's given um, to those who are obedient to God's law. And the catechism teaches us that you can merit, you can actually merit temporal blessings for yourself and others. So sometimes, you know, we have ancestors who merited, you know, a, a, a safe environment to live in, uh, home, wealth, these things were merited sometimes by our parents or people who were before them. Uh but anyway, that's what's being taught here. The deeper thing though is the supernatural life, not natural life, the supernatural life. And so the, the Old Testament law is the law of life.
2: That was chapter 30. Oh, was it 30?
0: Okay. It was 30,
2: 19. Okay, good.
0: Thanks. Thanks. So um, note and I've already pointed drew your attention to this. This is slide five. You're not drawing your attention to this. Uh in Syrac, um the transition from verse 10 to 11, something interesting happens. And this is a quote from a, a scholar who I studied. It was an essay of his. Um, it's a translation he wrote in Italian originally. In Israel, something is granted at the beginning of... Um, something granted, I'm sorry. In Israel, something granted at the beginning of humanity is realized again. So in when Israel was constituted as a nation on the day of the church, when God spoke the Ten Commandments... Something then was granted, uh, something is realized then that was granted at the beginning of humankind. By means of Israel, we can understand or perceive for ourselves what that human beginning was. By the mediation of Israel, all persons will be able to understand themselves. So Israel was established for itself, but not just for itself, but as a means for God to reach all human beings. Remember, in the seed of Abraham, all nations of the world would be blessed. So Israel was never to be kind of closed in on itself and to be in its own end, but it was really a means to an end. That end being the blessing of all the nations and the instruction of all the nations. And, uh, so this is, and that's realized ultimately in Christ, but we see a foreshadowing of that here in Syrac, because what he's saying is when Israel was constituted as a people at Mount Sinai on the day of the assembly, uh, there was a restoration of something that was given to all human beings right at the beginning. There was a return to the beginning. There was a universalization that took place. That's what Sirach is teaching. So, life here, the law of life as sanctifying grace. And I've spoken about this numerous times, and this is a foundational theological truth that we need to know as Christians. Uh, so, uh, what is sanctifying grace? Um, grace is uh, a quality that inheres in our soul that likens us to the divine nature. It makes us like God in a supernatural sense. And it elevates our natural level of existence and activity to a supernatural level of existence and activity. It, it lifts us up to the very level that God Himself exists at, because God Himself is truly the, the, the one thing that's supernatural. You know, like I said it before, I keep repeating myself, because I, sometimes I don't know who, who's here and who hasn't been here in past things, but even angels in a certain sense, you know, we have a, there's a loose way of using the word supernatural where we say if there's a ghost that shows up, well that's a supernatural phenomenon. Really, it's not if a ghost if they exist right that's another question but if that's a soul if it's a disembodied soul it's a natural phenomenon okay uh it's not supernatural an angel is a natural phenomenon it's a creature the thing if you want to use the word supernatural then it's in the most technical sense i'm not going to word cop you can use it however you want but if you want to use it in, in the most technical sense it denotes god the uncreated being of god no, no not a creature And so what's amazing about grace is that grace actually elevates us from a level of nature to a level of supernature. And that's God's, that's the, that's a level of existence and being and activity that God exists at. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. And Adam and Eve, the first, the progenitors of the human race, were created in their, in their created nature, but they were given grace, sanctifying grace, right from the get-go. And when they sinned, they lost it. They lost it for themselves and they lost it for all their descendants so that everybody who's born as, as their descendants is born not in a state of grace, has fallen from grace. And that's why we baptize because baptism is the doorway back into sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace makes us sons and daughters of God. It likens us to God. And it even, and I'm going to use this word, You might it might surprise you, I don't know, but it even divinizes us. And we can even say that we become gods through sanctifying grace. Gods with like a little g. Okay? Uh and so we'll get into that more, okay? Ezio is finding that funny. A little g. God with little g. g. <laughs> That's why your capitals are important here, okay? So if we go back to Genesis chapter two, God commands the first man and he says. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it... Now, most translations, if you go, they'll say something like, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or truly, I say to you, you will die. Or you, you're dead. You know, there's some kind of emphasis. But literally, in the Hebrew, there is an infinitive and a participle set right next to each other. And the word die is listed twice. So it actually uses the word die twice. It says, Dying, you shall die. In the day that you eat of it, dying, you shall die. Okay? And so, uh, a kind of a, a more mystical sense of what's going on here is that there's two deaths being spoken about. Not just natural death, but it's supernatural death. It's the death not just of the body, but of the soul. Because Adam was a created being, but he was also endowed with that supernatural life of grace and through his sin, he would die. And it is actually, in fact, on the day that he sinned, he didn't die physically. He didn't die physically, but he did die supernaturally. And that's the deeper reality that's being spoken about here. Dying, you shall die. Uh, and then it's also very interesting, when the blessing is given to Abraham, or when the blessing is promised to Abraham, it says, blessing, I will bless you. So there's a double blessing to re... basically to, to kind of counteract the double dying of Adam. There's a double blessing. All right So that's slide six. Now we're on slide seven, okay Now image and likeness as divine sonship and consequently as grace. So when the scriptures say that man was made in the image and likeness of God, it doesn't just mean what because that's why I had you know if you were if you can remember I said, The image of God in man has to do with his intelligence and his free will, but it doesn't just have to do with that. Okay? So the image and likeness of God has to do with the at the level of nature, we have an intellect and free will. But also the image and likeness of God, as it was used in reference to the first man, also pertain to that sanctifying grace. Okay, because it's grace that likens us to the divine nature and makes us like God, makes us in his image in a deeper sense. We are in God's image by nature inasmuch as we have intellect and free will, but then through grace we become like God in a, in a much higher and supernatural sense. And that's what's all packed in there in these words. It's very, There's a lot of meaning in each one of these words. So in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In Genesis 5.3 it says, Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image point being that image and likeness is used as a father to a son. And so when Adam was created in the image of God, it was basically saying that Adam is God's son. But not just a son in a natural sense, but a son like how you and I are sons and daughters of God in a supernatural sense. Okay, And so then you have this passage from the Gospel of Luke, where it refers to Adam as the son of God. Okay. So now we've got another passage from wisdom here. It says, God created man for incorruption. So it wasn't the intention that man would die. Man has a body that's subject to corruption by nature. But God gave that first man grace. And then there was actually, because we have grace, but we still die as well. And that's a result of Adam's sin. Adam had something else in addition to what we have. He had sanctifying grace, but he also had what is referred to as the preternatural gifts one of which was that if he continued in obedience to God if he continued to maintain the grace of God in his life he would not die okay so he had the possibility of not dying as long as he remained obedience to the commandment that God had given to him when he broke that commandment he lost sanctifying grace and he lost that preternatural gift of the po- of that possibility of not dying and so he became you know uh, basically re- he God essentially handed him over to his nature, which is corruptible, because we're just by nature we will break down and die. We're not immortal by nature, okay? Just like animals, it's the same thing. Um, Now, what's interesting though is that Adam had the possibility of not dying, but Christ came to give us the impossibility of dying. Okay, So when we are resurrected, our resurrected bodies, it's impossible for them to die. Adam had the possibility of not dying, but Christ in his resurrected body and all of us in our resurrected bodies, we will have the gift of the impossibility of dying. It's not just the possibility of not dying, but the impossibility of dying. So we'll have an indestructible life. Um, And that's our ultimate calling. And Adam was called to that as well. If Adam had persisted in obedience, he would have maintained grace, he would have maintained Uh, that preternatural gift of, uh, incorruptibility, and then obedience after obedience after obedience would have led, he would have grown in grace, just like Our Lady did. Our Lady was conceived in grace right from the beginning, and she grew in grace, grew in grace, grew in grace. And, uh, you know, there's some traditions that she didn't even die, that she was just assumed right to heaven. Okay. That's probably not the, the more authoritative tradition, but that is a possibility. Okay. And, uh, that's exactly, she, 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 if she did, follow that trail. She followed the trail of what Adam and Eve should have and could have followed. They would never have died. They would have been basically glorified. And they would have been endowed with that resurrected indestructible life if they had continued on in it, in that and made it through that seri- that uh, period of probation. Because we're all in a period of probation right now. All right. So that's what wisdom says. God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death Entered the world through the devil's envy. Death entered the worlds, and uh, the Paul, Saint Paul, in Romans chapter five, in a very important passage, echoes that passage from Wisdom. So you know Saint Paul was, was reading Wisdom multiple times and had it in his heart and in his mind. And when he was inspired to write Romans chapter five, he says uh, that death entered the world through one man, and uh, or sin entered the world through one man, and through sin, death. And Paul is is, is echoing wisdom. But wisdom makes it really clear that it's through the devil's envy that death entered the world. Now, here's Psalm 8. Let's read Psalm 8. Um, We'll have another brave volunteer. So Psalm is after Job. And Job is after... (coughs) Esther. Psalms are before Proverbs. So let's let's read all of Psalm eight. Um, this is a beautiful Psalm, very famous one, as many of the Psalms are. Would you like to read?
2: O Lord, our Lord, how awesome is your name through all the earth. You have set your majesty above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have drawn a defense against your foes to silence enemy and avenger. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set in place, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mere mortals, that you care for them. Yet you have made them little less than a god. Crown them with glory and honor. You have given them rule over the works of your hands, put all things at their feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatever swims the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how awesome is your name through all the earth!
0: Great. So we have a. This is a sidebar here. This is free of charge. Um, Is that you know? Sometimes people, in their arrogance, today will say things like you know. Before the Copernican Revolution, all those dumb ancient Christians and Jews, they thought that, you know, human beings were like the center of the world and they were the most important thing ever, but now we know human beings are just this little speck, you know, because we've got this understanding of the, how large the cosmos is. And it's really, it's really, you're doing a disservice to ancient, uh, human beings because they thought the same thing. When they looked up at the heavens, they said, what's, what's a human being compared to this? This glory is amazing. And, uh, before the Copernican Revolution, and when people thought in terms of the Ptolemaic system of the universe, they, they believed, this is amazing to think about this, they believed that the Earth was, was in fact the center of the, of the, of the universe. But they thought that it was, uh, equivalent in its size to a mathematical point. So that means dinky. Like, what? You, you can't even, it's not quantifiable, it's so small. They thought the Earth was like a mathematical point. That's how big they thought the universe was, which is pretty close to what it actually what it is. I and mean, so they weren't dummies. And they did have this sense that human beings are dwarfed in this massive cosmos with all of these beautiful stars. And it makes you wonder, like, why does God care about us if we're just this little speck in the middle of nowhere? You know. But nonetheless, God does care about us because we're made in His image. And our dignity, the dignity of one human being simply because that human being has a soul, an intellect, and a free will is of much higher dignity than the entire material cosmos put together. That's how amazing man is. And that's just at the level of nature. And then what happens when that little baby is baptized? Okay, then the dignity increases, you know, to an extent that we can't even conceive because now that, that human being who's made in the image of God by nature, is now in the image of God by grace. And it's and destined for glory. And so we see glory here. So God's glory is above the heavens. And then he says about man that he's made him a little bit less than, and the Hebrew word here is Elohim. And you can translate Elohim as God, <laughs> or you can translate it as angels. So it's interesting. So man made... Uh, God made human beings a little less than God, or a little less than angels. It's one or the other. Okay, maybe both. Right? It says angels in mine. It says an angels and yours. Okay. He's made him a little less than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now remember how we were learning about how Adam is is a son. He's a father, but he's also a king. What does the king wear on his head? Crown. It's a crown, and he's crowned him with glory. All right. Now, that is the image of God. That's the grace that's being referred to. All right. So sometimes glory signifies what we what we technically mean by grace, but sometimes glory you know, is used in a, in a technical sense as well. So you've got a technical use of a word, you've got a more loose use of the word, and I think the word glory here is used in a looser sense. Okay? But in any event, grace and glory are related to each other. So the very uh, fundamental sort of maxim... In our theological tradition, it's this. Grace is the seed of glory. Grace is the seed of glory. So the life of God that exists in us right now through baptism is ordered towards the glory of the resurrection. It's meant to flower forth in the resurrection. And unless we impede that process from happening, it will happen. But we can impede it through our, through mortal sin. Okay? Um, but here's here's the first. This is human beings. This is what they were meant for. Is they were established and constituted originally in glory, and also meant for glory. Okay. Uh, Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and are in need of the glory of God. Okay. Another translation says, "For all have sinned and and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and are in need of the glory of God." Okay. So now here's the Catechism. And the Catechism has an interesting sort of, almost like an indirect commentary on Romans 3.23. So here's what words from the Catechism. Scripture portrays the tragic consequences of this first disobedience, the original sin. Adam and Eve immediately lose the grace of original holiness. And then the Catechism cites Romans 3.23, for all have sinned in our need of the glory of God. So implying that Adam and Eve had the glory of God like it says in Psalm 8. And when they sinned, they fell from that. So here's uh, paragraph seven hundred five. Disfigured by sin and death, man remains in the image of God, in the image of the Son, but is deprived of the glory of God, of his likeness. Now that is a that's a a very traditional patristic reading of Genesis one twenty six. So if you go to one twenty six, it says, "Let us make man in our image and in our likeness." Now what many of the church fathers say is that Image denotes man's likeness to God at the level of nature, and then likeness denotes man's likeness to God at the level of grace. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the likeness, but they returned. They remained sorry. They retained the image, and so then through baptism they gather the likeness, and then they have to grow in the likeness. That's like a traditional. Uh, patristic interpretation. They make a distinction. It's a useful distinction to make between those two. I don't know if you want to press that really strongly, you know, because image probably could mean grace as well. But it's kind of a convenient way of looking at it and thinking about it. Okay? So, uh, here's another paragraph here. Um, oh, wait, I already read that. Oh, and so Christ is the image uh, of God. Par excellence, the eternal image of God, and Adam and Eve were created in His image, right in the beginning, and then He became incarnate uh, so that basically that image would be restored. There'd be a healing of that image and a restoration of that image. It's kind of like I think Saint Saint Irenaeus uses the uh, uses the metaphor of a painting. Uh, is that you know the painting was God created this beautiful painting in the beginning. And through human freedom and satanic malice, that that painting was all disfigured. And then Christ came uh, and basically sat as a remodel uh, to like restore that image. He like remodeled it. he was the he was the restoration of that piece of artwork. Here's another passage from the Catechism: The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of His eternal mystery. What is revealed of it in creation and history, Scripture calls glory. The radiance of His majesty. And then it's like Psalm 8, which we just read. And Isaiah 6.3. Isaiah 6.3 is when the prophet sees the seraphim. And they're around the throne and they're covering their, their face and they're covering their body. And they're flying and they're saying, uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of His glory. So there's that reference to glory. So, in making man in his image and likeness, God crowns him with glory and honor. But by sinning, man fell short of the glory of God. And then it says Romans 3.23, all these different texts that we've been looking at. Okay. So, the law of life, life. Thus, in Syrac, our original text, we see the Sinai revelation as parallel to God creating and constituting Adam in his image and in sanctifying grace, which is the seed of glory which is immortality. So here's Israel. Remember, uh, Adam was God's son. And now Israel is God's son. This is God's intention from the beginning. And uh, you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. So Israel is God's firstborn son. Um, meaning that grace that Adam had, that relationship, that friendship that God had with Adam in the beginning, that's precisely why he wanted to take Israel apart as a special people. He wanted to reestablish that that paradisical relationship um, that was lost through original sin. And so Israel is God's son. He's a Israel's a new Adam. And now, here again, remember we're talking about the glory. We're talking about man who is crowned with glory. Alright? Now, the ancient crowns, they had horns on them. Okay? The ancient crowns had horns on them. A horn was a symbol of power. Alright? And the bull, you know, they got the bull's horn or whatever. And it's, the horn is used as a symbol of power and strength all throughout Scripture, and the, all the ancient civilizations that didn't know the, anything about the Bible, it was something—it was a convention that they used. So they take this band, they put it on their head, and they have horns on it, and it was a symbol of their strength. I'm the king. That was the symbol. Okay, I'm, I'm the chief dog here. And so, what's Moses got coming out of his head? It's these horns, basically. Okay, so that that glory, that grace, that God established. That glory and honor that was given to man at the beginning is restored in Israel. But Moses is a representative of Israel. He's the mediator. He's the chief mediator. And so he's going to really reflect that glory um, in a special way, in a preeminent way. So let's read. Uh let's read Exodus chapter 34, 27 to 35. Now Moses has already broken the commandment, uh sorry, broken the tablets. He came down. They're worshiping the golden calf. He's really mad. He breaks the tablets. Okay. He takes the golden calf. He grinds it to powder. He makes them. He makes them eat it. All right. Um, and then uh, they have this whole. All this. It's just, it gets really violent and bloody. But eventually, there's a certain kind of penance that's restored. God wants to wipe out all of Israel. Moses has to do, has to intervene and uh, and basically Moses saves Israel's life through his mediation through his prayers and then uh God says okay this is what I'm going to do go back up mount Sinai those tablets I'm going to rewrite them out and then they're going to continue on okay so Moses goes back up Sinai and then when he comes down now this time he's serious because there's been this whole series of series of penance that's been taking place the children of Israel are a little bit more serious because all of this bloodshed has taken place. Moses comes down, and his face is is glowing, and he wasn't even aware of, he wasn't even aware of it. And the people are afraid, just like they were afraid on the day of the church when God's voice spoke from from out the midst of the fire, the burning mountain. So now Mo, they're afraid of Moses, and so he has to put a veil over his face, and so Moses wears like a like a veil. Okay, and then um, when he speaks. He comes, it's very, I mean, it's a very kind of incre- impressive sort of scene if you can imagine it. He's gonna give the oracles of God and so he lifts the veil and his face is luminous and then he speaks the word of God. It's like, okay, can you imagine that if your teacher was, his face was glowing? Like, you'd listen to your teacher, right? You know, or if Father Leoi got up and his face was just glowing, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I usually sleep when this guy talks, but now I'm listening to him, you know? So, um also, he, he, Moses would lift the veil when he went into the tent to commune with God. So when he went to, to get, make him come into that contact, he would lift that veil. So let's read Exodus uh, 34. Who's, got, who's a volunteer for us? Verses 27 to 35. Go ahead.
3: Okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, without eating any food or drinking any water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. As Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, he did not know that the skin of his face had become radiant while he spoke with the Lord. When Aaron then and the other Israelites saw Moses and noticed how radiant the skin of his face had become, they were afraid to come near him. Only after Moses called to them did Aaron and all the leaders of the community come back to him. Moses then spoke to them. Later all the Israelites came up to him, and he enjoined on them all that the Lord had told them on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses entered the presence of the Lord to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out again. On coming out, he would tell the Israelites all that he had been commanded.
0: Excellent. Very good. So he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat or drink. Okay, So he was supernaturally sustained. Remember, it's the law of life. Okay, And that's really a foreshadowing of the resurrection because in the resurrection, we will not need to eat or drink. Okay? Um, what else can you see here? Some interesting observations. Uh, Christ, Christ was right? To think, didn't he didn't eat or drink for forty days. In the well, that's true too. Yes. Yeah, so that would be there would. Well, he would dr- probably have drank water. You know, probably he would have drank water. But it says he didn't eat. You know, so he probably went without food, but he probably did drink. And he was he was ministered to the other. Okay, very good. He was ministered to by the angels after the temptation took place. He was ministered to by the angels. Now there's a tradition, remember in Abraham when we were studying about Abraham. So, uh, what happened when the angels came and, uh, they, there's three angels and they sat down, and they had a little meal with Abraham. Did they, did they eat or what? <coughs> remember we talked about this? The, the interesting conundrum is that they, you know, Genesis, they appear to eat, right? Uh, but the later Jewish traditions say, you know, they didn't really eat because the angels are like a burning fire and so when they put the food in in their mouth it was just an appearance and like the fire burned up the food. Okay? And so they didn't really eat because angels don't eat. And so people would say, well this is what happened with Moses. When Moses went up Sinai he went into like the heavenly realms and he was in communion with the angels who don't eat. And so then he did what they did. And so God reminds the angels when He sends them on mission to Abraham. He says, "Well, just like Moses is going to do, you know, what you guys do when in heaven, do as the heavenly inhabitants do. So when you're on earth, do as the the earthly inhabitants do. So, so you guys got to eat, okay? (laughs) So it's a tit, you know, it's a tit for tat there. But there's this, yeah, this question about eating and and all this kind of stuff. Um, And then we've got the passage in Tobit. Where Tobit uh the angel Raphael looks like he's eating but he's really not eating. Okay? So that's one question to, to dim down. But the bigger thing is that Moses' face is luminous and, and glowing. Where else where do we see that in the gospel? Someone's face glows. On the Mount of on the Mount of, on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's on a mountain. It's the same thing. Okay? Uh and also, too, who does who does Jesus see on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and, Moses and Elijah. Okay, And I'm going to get into eventually what I want to show, and I think I'll do this next class, is that the lawgiver on Mount Sinai was Jesus Christ. And so Moses went up to Mount Sinai to meet Jesus, and in the Gospel, Jesus goes up Mount Tabor to meet Moses. And they're old friends, and they know each other, and they're talking to each other, especially in Luke, it says they're having a conversation. Okay, And that shows you that there's a friendship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that they're not fundamentally incompatible with each other. And that's really key. And that's kind of the lesson that's going to come out of these two sessions, to this session and the next one, is that Moses and Jesus are friends. Okay, so let's pay attention here closely, though. This is the Hebrew text, all right? U uh, Moshe lo yada ki karan or panav ito. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face, and I'm being very literal here, okay, Quran, was horned. This is the most literal translation of the Hebrew. Moses did not know that the skin of his face was horned. Okay? In his speaking with him, in his speaking with God, his face was horned. Right now, literally it was like light, but because the light was like spiking out like lightning, it was like horns. Right. And then you have. Remember, I've spoken a lot about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. How important this is, okay? Moses took the doxa stai. The doxa stai is a is a verbal form of doxa, which is glory. All right. So a good translation here says Moses did not know that the appearance of the skin of his face was charged with glory while he was speaking with him. Okay. Now here's the Vulgate uh, translation. This is the Latin translation that Saint Jerome did. In uraba, quote cornuta esset facies sua ex consortio ceremonis dei. But Moses did not know that the faith, that his face was horned from participation in the Word of God. Okay, that's the that's the Vulgate translation. Okay. So we've got horns as divine glory and power. So there's a text out of Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Taman and Mount Paran are the southern region, and all the commentators, at least that I read, in the modern commentators, they say what this is talking about is, is Sinai. It's talking about the, the Sinai theophany. So, so it's from the direction of the original Sinai theophany. So there's a reference to Sinai, His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Horns came forth from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Horns came forth from his hand, but horns of like light and lightning. The power of God. It's an awesome image. And then there's also a patristic tradition that this is a foreshadowing of actually the crucifixion. That Christ and the horns that were the nails that went through that pierced his hands, and it was in his suffering and in his death that his power was hidden. It's pretty wild, right? So uh, horns came forth from his hands. But the point is, is that oh, I should have put the Hebrew up there because the same word that we see in Moses's face being horned is also in Habakkuk. So it just shows you that this idea of horns and lighting, and glory, and lightning, and all this kind of stuff. And then I want to I want to link it back ultimately to. Uh, Psalm 8, where it says that he crowned him with, with glory and honor, Adam. So now you've got the famous uh, statue of Michelangelo, and he's got Moses with the horns. Okay, And um, what Mo, uh, <clears throat> Michelangelo, again, you, you find a lot of ignorance out there, and you say the two things that you can just rebut right away, because the, these people were way smarter than us today in so many ways. Jerome knew exactly what he was doing. When he translated the Vulgate as horned, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was just doing a very literal translation. He understood that it was light, that there was like an effusion of light coming off Moses' face. He was just being very literal to the literal Hebrew, and so he translated it horned. Jerome knew that. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. Because you find people that will that will kind of like denigrate the Vulgate. The Vulgate's a terrible translation it was stupid. They didn't know anything. Us modern scholars are so much smarter. It's, that's really not the case, okay? Jerome knew what he was doing. You can tell that from his commentaries and stuff. And then, so what happens is in this very literal translation, there's a kind of a tradition in our art, in the western art, where Moses starts to be portrayed with horns. So then the other dumb thing that you find is people say, well, Michelangelo was really s- stupid. He read the Vulgate and, you know, the Vulgate was a faulty translation and it said that Moses had horns, so you know, he puts horns on Moses. What the heck? And, all the stuff that I'm talking about, this—they understood this. They understood this. All the stuff that I'm talking about, they understood this idea of glory and grace the restoration of glory. And it's part of our artistic traditions, that Moses would have these horns coming out of his mouth, out of his head. They understood it was a symbol of glory, and they knew that. They knew that it wasn't like literally horns were coming out of Moses' head. So it's just part of the icon. It's a symbol. It's meant to be taken literally. And uh so for hundreds of years before Michelangelo did his famous Moses, you see pictures of Moses with horns. So Michelangelo was working in a tradition of artwork. He wasn't he didn't make an error like he woke up one day and read the Exodus in the Vulgate and made you know, duh whoops and then spent you know five years creating one of the most beautiful sculptures ever and it was all a mistake, you know, because he misread the Vulgate. I mean you hear people saying that. It's just not true, okay? Um, so horns are the lightning which accompany a theophany and similarly in Exodus 34:29 indicate rays of light the greater our union with and knowledge of God the more like to him we become this is the deification of man that Adam had as both possession and vocation so all of this goes back to Adam i mean we can almost imagine Adam with like the horns you know the glory coming out of his face and then when he sinned he lost that glory and so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are in need of that restoration of glory. And Moses is like a new Adam who's coming back and he's uh, God through him is restoring that grace. <clears throat> oh, and this, the deification part is this. I, I tie it to Habakkuk because in Habakkuk, it's God's hands that glory comes. So it's glory that's, that's coming forth out of God is a symbol of divinity. And so Moses got a symbol of divinity on his face. He's like a, a god. So here is a scholar whose essay I follow. Um, following this guy Gobble, a good case can be made on the basis of Jewish and Samaritan Midrash. Midrash is an interpretive tradition. That behind 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 lies an Adam-Moses theme that drew from Psalm 8. Alright, and he's very amazing. The scholar is very amazing because he draws from literature from the Samaritans, okay, and from ancient uh, Jewish literature, and he shows how the ancient rabbis and Samaritans read Psalm eight as a as a kind of this uh, glory that Adam had, and how Moses, because of the scene on Sinai, was like he he reacquired this glory that Adam lost, and that that's probably the case. You can make a good case that. Saint Paul when he was combating these false teachers in the Corinthians, the false teachers were saying Moses like you don't worry about Jesus so much. Jesus is like an he's like an ancillary to Moses. Moses is the real deal. You guys got to observe the law. And Moses is like the restoration of Adam's glory. Moses is the big dog, okay? Jesus is good, but Moses is is the big dog, okay? And, uh, so that these false teachers were pumping up Moses and pumping up Moses as like a new Adam. And so what Paul does is he re- inverts that whole argument and he says that Christ is actually the, the new, I'm sorry, the real new Adam. And so then therefore, St. Paul starts to get into this contrast between Christ and Moses. And Christ is the image of God and Moses' is face reflecting all this stuff. But the point is is that even though Paul for Paul to even be able to make that kind of argument it presupposes this tradition of Moses being a new Adam. All right? And that's kind of my point that I'm making right now. According to this exegetical tradition the law is a giver of divine life, a source of restored adamic glory, an entrance back into a lost paradise of communion with God. And in the Samaritan tradition they they refer to the giving of the law as as, um, as basically Moses entering into the paradise of the law. That the law is paradise. And that you enter into it, you enter into paradise. Okay? So now I'm going to have you guys read for next time 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and 4. So uh, we don't have time to reference those. I don't think we have time to reference those. We can return to those. But you'll see how St. Paul is dealing very interestingly with this tradition of Moses' face. Glowing and Jesus in contrast to Moses and so forth and so on. So, here's another consideration. Okay? Uh, when you read many modern scholars, and I think they're right, I mean I think they're correct, this is what they say. Genesis chapters 2 and 3 itself is a commentary on the law and on the sin of the golden calf. Genesis 2 and 3 itself And how you would understand it is like this. Think about this. Think of it this way. This is how I would frame it to myself. Is that in Israel's history, they had a historical consciousness of the the event of Sinai. That was in their kind of communal, national history and memory. Adam and Eve, remember how right in the beginning I talked about there's this difference between the primal history and then... So Genesis 1 through 11 cover prehistory. Genesis 12 onwards cover history, and history being defined as these things like we have documents, human documents that can can basically exist and verify these different events either directly or indirectly. Whereas this prehistory, we don't really have anything that can verify it, and so you go, you get it's not I don't want to call it myth, but you get into almost kind of a legendary realm. Genesis 1 through 11 is semi legendary, okay. And uh, the story of Adam and Eve has a lot of symbols in it. You don't know what to take literally, what not to take literally, okay? And so, Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve is not something within the historical consciousness of, of Israel. What's in the historical consciousness of Israel is the giving of the law and that primal sin of the golden calf. And so the golden calf becomes like the original sin for Israel, and then... Moses, or whoever the author and editor of Genesis is, includes the story of Adam and Eve by way of explanation. It's almost like a commentary on that more foundational consciousness of Sinai and the sin of the golden calf. Point being that uh, there's this really intimate connection between the story of Adam and Eve and the fall, uh, that commandment that's given in the fall versus the law that's given at Sinai and the sin of the golden calf. Very closely connected, and then of course they're exiled from the Holy Land because of their idolatry, just like Adam and Eve were exiled from paradise because of their sin. So let's go to Psalm 82 now. This is uh, really interesting here. I want to tie together some pretty pretty neat stuff here. We got about 20 minutes left. So I put the whole psalm up online, uh, up on on the screen here. Okay, so we can just read it up there. <clears throat> Now, uh, you can read along with your translation. In fact, it might be instructive to see how they translate it versus how I translate it, okay? I use the literal Hebrew words. I transliterate the Hebrew words that have to do with God because they're very important to pay attention to these. So we begin by saying this. Elohim, Elohim is God's name, is the name, okay? Uh, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So Elohim is one of the main names for God. Elohim has taken his place in the council of El. El is another name for God. Okay, Elohim has taken his place in the council of El. Now, this is the background reference to this. There's a council. There's a council of El. Hopefully we can talk about this more as we go on. The council of El is God's angelic advisors, essentially. God very rarely shows up alone in the Bible. Whenever... The, the, the veil of the heavens are peeled back, and we get a vision of God. There's always angels. Okay? So the council of God is his angelic entourage that surrounds him, that advises him, so to speak, metaphorically. Okay? So that's the council of El. Elohim has taken his place in the council of El. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. And so angels are referred to as Elohim. That's why in Psalm 8, sometimes they translate Elohim, God has made man a little lower than God. Sometimes some translations say made him a little lower than angels. Because Elohim can be both God and angels. Because the angels are God like. And we are called to become like the angels. We are called to become little gods, essentially. Okay, so Elohim has taken his place in the Council of El. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, the most at the most literal level, there's multiple levels of interpretation of this psalm. The most literal level, what's being spoken about are human kings or judges, and they're being like they're being called gods. They're being likened to these powerful divine-like beings, angelic beings, because they wield God's authority on earth as kings. These are human kings or human judges. And they're judging unjustly, and so that's why the psalmist is condemning them. That's the most literal level. Is that this is a this is a um, uh, basically a rant, so to speak. I'm trying to think of a more polite word, but it's a rant against judges who abuse human judges who abuse their power. But he's likening them to these divine beings, to gods. Okay, that's how much power they have. And if you can remember when I talked about uh, the fl- Noah, let's go back to Noah, and if you can recall. Uh, the death penalty was instituted after Noah because you got all this human violence taking place on the earth and God doesn't know how to deal with it, so he wipes them all out through the flood and then after the flood, he's got to have some kind of safety measure and so he talks about how human beings are being created in the image of God and so therefore, if someone kills someone, they have to be killed. Okay, So the death penalty is instituted and how I talked about how in our moral tradition, according to the Thomistic theology at least, probably shouldn't say tradition as a whole, but at least one theological tradition that we recognize is legitimate, um, that uh to be able to morally justify self defense, you have to appeal to a certain moral principle called double effect. And the person who's defending themselves and using up to even lethal force cannot directly intend to kill the person for it to be morally justified. If it's a secondary effect of that, the main goal of the self-defense has to be stopping the person from doing their injustices or their violence or whatever. Now, if the, the outcome is the person's death, it's justifiable by way of double effect. But you can never directly intend to kill someone morally. Okay, But that's not what happens when the state kills someone. That's not what happens when war is waged. And so, in the moral tradition, the only way to justify an executioner having that authority to actually directly kill someone and intend to kill someone, it's because he is participating in the authority of God. He has divine authority, and the state has divine authority to wage war and to inflict up, to you know, the penalty, the death penalty. And so, it's that's why the, the kings in the Old Testament are referred to as gods, is they're participating. In an authority that's way beyond what human beings have by right of just being human beings. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of an aside. But anyways, so we're talking about judges right here. So now the psalmist is condemning these unjust judges. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. This is verse three. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Uh, now he's now the, the the tirade stops. Verse five. Now this is a reflection or comment about the unjust judges. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Sometimes we feel disappointed by our, our political leaders and we feel like the world's falling apart because you know they're not doing the right thing. Um, I think we're very blessed. I think American statesmen are, are good, relatively speaking. You know, uh, So we're lucky. But in many countries, it's not that case. And you feel like the world's going to fall apart because the politicians are not doing their job. So I say, you are Elohim this is to the judges, you are the kings. You are gods, you are angelic beings, you are divine beings, sons of Elion, all of you. Elion is another name for God. So you are Elohim, sons of Elion, all of you. Nevertheless, as Adam, as Adam, you shall die and fall like any prince. Like Adam, you shall die. And fall like any prince, and then finally arise, Elohim, meaning God, the true God. Arise, God, judge the earth, for to thee belong all the nations. So very, there's a lot going on in there. So what what we do here? Remember when we talked, we got into Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is a tirade against a king, as well, just like Psalm 82. And this king is like this divine being, but when we when we start to understand what's going on in this passage. It's not just um, a tirade uh, against a particular king, the king of Tyre, a historical human being, but it's also we're learning about this angelic being, Satan, who fell, and we're learning about Adam and his fall as well. That's what Ezekiel 28 is, is really getting into. So by way of a tirade against a human king, we learn about Adam. So also by way of a tirade against human kings or judges, we're learning about Adam, so just like these, uh, you know, these kings are Elohim and they fall and die. So also Adam was an was of the Elohim, and then because he sinned, he fell into mortality and death. So what characterizes a God is that they're deathless, and Adam had a certain kind of deathlessness about him. Remember, he had the possibility of not dying. And he had a vocation to that indestructible life of the resurrection. And uh, so that's important for us to get down that Adam had that. Yes. Now, Adam's status as, as God was present possession and yet also vocation. Grace is the seed of glory. The devil tempted Adam with what he was already called to become. Think about that. Because in the garden... Satan says in Genesis three five, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. And so Adam was called to be a god. It's incredible that human beings are called to be gods. You've got to parse that out and really understand what that means. Human beings, there's an infinite distance between the uncreated being of God and all creatures, but they were called to be gods in that they were called to participate in God's grace and glory. Okay, So God by way of participation. And so the temptation was that you will be like Elohim, like God or like the gods. Now it's very interesting because this is what happened in the desert when Christ was tempted. So Christ was destined in his humanity to be the Lord and the King of all the earth. But what was the third and the final and the most powerful temptation of the devil? Brought him up to a high mountain, more mountain images, showed him all the glory Glory of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth. The devil says, "All this has been given to me, and I give it to whomever I want to. And if you bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you." And and Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, yes. and he says, "Man shall not live." Oh no, wait, that's a different one. Man, he says. He says quotes from Deuteronomy. He says that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So he, you know, the devil did, flees. Sorry. Did,
1: uh, did Satan know that Jesus was God?
0: Well, I think we talked about that before. Remember. Don't you remember bringing that up before? No, I
1: don't.
0: You don't really. No, 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 no. You don't remember that? Yeah, we had an extensive conversation about this. Yeah, mama's, mama's. The the tradition there's a very strong tradition that no, he didn't. He didn't. Satan had a Satan had a, a a sense that he was the Messiah, but he didn't. Satan didn't have a full understanding of what was going on. So there was a kind of a you know God outsmarted the devil in a certain sense. Okay. Um, yeah, the devil didn't really know that he was God.
2: How come he always has
1: horns when you see him? The devil? Mm-hmm.
0: And the artistic—I think it has to do with, you know, like demons are are um, because of their, you know, I guess angels are created in the image of God, okay, um, and then when we and so are human beings, and when we sin, we become bestial, okay. So we lose that image of God, and there's a kind of now we take on the image of an animal, all right.
1: There's also the angel light. <laughs>
0: That's another. That's interesting too. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, an angel of light. Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light. Yeah, that's something I never thought about. That's that's an area to explore. But just going on this original thought is, you know, that's why you get the the devil. He's got the hooves, and you know, all this kind of animal like images and all this stuff. It's all it's all symbolic. All right, demons are non corporeal beings. They don't have bodies, so there there isn't any image. They don't have an image that you can see with an eye their eyes, but it's a symbol, and it shows that they're fallen from that original image of God, and they've taken on these bestial qualities. So the horns, in that case, are going to be like an like a he's like an animal, you know. Um, but maybe there is something to what Rick is saying, is because it, Paul says in two Corinthians, in fact, in fact, in two Corinthians he says it, which is also the passage where he's getting into Moses and the light. Yeah. Yeah, no, there could be something about that. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light. And that's a reference to the book of Job. Because remember, we talked about the Council of Elohim. So when you open up Job, in the first chapter, it says that the sons of God, who are angels, and remember, we're all called to be sons of God, angels are sons of God, the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. And Satan also presented himself before the Lord. And so Satan makes his way in the midst of the angels. Disguise disguised himself as an angel of light. That's where Paul's getting that from. But yeah, I don't know. There's a lot. Bible's deep. A lot of stuff going on here. It's just a surface. We're just scraping the surface here. Okay. Oh, but my point is is that the, the devil tempted Christ with the very thing he was going to be getting. But he did it without the cross. See, that was, that was the, the devil's trick. He's like, you can have all this glory but without the cross if you just worship me. Satan, and, and, the, and, and Christ knew that he had to go to that suffering and humiliation of the cross before he was going to be exalted and receive all the glory. And, uh, and so it is with us as well. And so there's always the temptation for us to avoid the cross. You know, crown, crown without the cross. Crown without the cross. It's always the temptation. That's the temptation the devil puts before us. Okay? Have forgiveness without any kind of repentance. You know? Have a a great relationship with God, and God loves you no matter what. It's it's without repentance, without changing your life, without the suffering that it takes of you know, taking your will and submitting it to God's will. Uh, The question from the beginning is, how do we become gods? Satan wanted to achieve his final end, but he wanted to do so according to his own created nature. Or perhaps he wanted a different final end than the one to which he was called, the lower one that he could achieve according to his own nature. And so that is the satanic mindset, is that uh, Satan was called to glory. He was created in grace, called to glory, but he wanted to attain that final end of his. He wanted to be like God, but not according to God's grace and according to God's way and with God's help. He wanted to do it out of the resources of his own created nature. That is the satanic sin. And um, so we're called to be gods, but we're going to do it, we have to do it God's way. And when we do it our way, we're gods in terms of our pride, we're in terms of our domination of other people, uh, abuse of created goods of the world. Okay? So let's see if we can get through this. Uh, But if we can tie the Sinai Theophany into Eden, okay, so imagine this now. This is how the logic's working. So we can, we're seeing how Sinai in the day of the church is tied to the Garden of Eden. Now we see how Psalm 82, with all its talk about gods and Adam and Eve being gods, is tied into Eden. So now link the two together. And we can see how Sinai is tied into the gods and deification. Okay? So, uh, thus at the Sinai Theophany, the people of Israel were made gods. The deified status that Adam and Eve had, was lo- uh, had lost was restored to the people of Israel when the ten words were pronounced from Mount Sinai on the day of the church. And so we get in Exodus 20, 18-19, after the words are spoken, the people say to Moses, You speak to us, don't let God speak to us, lest we die. But wait, God was speaking to them and they didn't die. Okay, now what a very profound Jewish interpretation is that God suspended the power of the angel of death when he spoke to them. Okay, so that they wouldn't die. So there's this whole thing, when the word of God is given and spoken, there's that grace, that deathlessness, that uh, freedom, that eternal life is given with the word of God. Okay? So here's a 2nd century Jewish Midrash. This is this is a Jewish interpretation. Rabbi Jose says, It was upon this condition that the Israelites stood up before Mount Sinai, on the condition that the angel of death should not have power over them. For it is said, I said, ye are gods. But you have corrupted your conduct. Surely you shall die like men. So this Jewish interpretation is tying all of these texts together. And they're basically saying that Psalm 82 is a commentary about Mount Sinai. So when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, it was, you are gods. I'm speaking to you the word of God. You are. I am deifying you by the power of my words. But how did they become uh, mortal and die like any man? What was the sin that they did? The, the golden calf. Okay. So it's amazing. The, the, the fall, I'm sorry, the, the, the initial grace of God, the fall... Of Adam and Eve, of, of Israel and Mount Sinai, of all and what Christ came to do—it's all condensed into Psalm eighty-two in like two verses. Like all salvation history is condensed. That's what I'm talking about. How it's like the cell in your body. All the DNA of your entire body is in every single cell. That's how the Bible is written. In every single passage, it's like the entire thing is there, but you got to unpack it. It's deep. Uh, so, in light of Exodus. Uh, the makilta this is the Jewish tradition here indicates that God restrained the angel of death so that Israel did not die and so because Israel became deathless that is beyond the power of the angel of death Psalm 82 applied to them I said you are gods gods then because deathless but with the worship of the golden calf Israel sinned and suffered once more the penalty for sin which is death you shall die like men now so Israel experienced a new creation at Sinai it was there on the day of the church when they became the church when the word of God was spoken to Israel, that Israel became deathless once more, as it resumed the image and likeness of God given to it at creation. Um, so then I've got some other references. Uh, now the Lord is the Spirit. Okay, we're gonna gonna try to get to the end of this first here. So let's go to John ten twenty two to thirty eight. Oh, it's eight thirty. Can I go? Yeah. Can I finish? Can I finish? Okay. All right. Thanks. So, in John chapter ten, it's very fascinating. The the uh, Pharisees surround Jesus, and they get in this dis- dis- dispute with him. And basically, Jesus says to them, "I'm God." And they pick up stones to kill him. And he says, "Why are you, you going to stone me?" Uh, for what good work are you going to stone me and they say it's not for good work we're going to stone you but because you though you are a man you're making yourself god and that's blasphemy and so we're going to kill you for that okay you though you're a man you're making yourself god and jesus answers them he says is it not written in your law i said you are gods if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now that text right there, vast majority of them, the people in the reader, they're like, what is he talking about? It's one of the most kind of like dense and mysterious verses. In the, well, there's tons of dense and mysterious verses all throughout the Bible, but that's one of them for sure. That would be kind of like the top probably 200 dense <laughs> and mysterious verses in the Bible. But all of these texts that I've just gone through now help you understand what Jesus is talking about right there. He's actually agreeing with this Jewish understanding that Psalm 82 should be linked to the Sinai event. And it says, those to whom the word of God came on the day of the church at Mount Sinai, he says, you are gods. Okay. So there's a power sanctification of the law that's happening right then and there. Now what's amazing is this. The children of Israel are becoming gods with, the low, with a small g, right? With a lowercase g. Jesus is God with a big g. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what, though he's also, he's also a human being. Okay? Now, we are human persons who are given grace and made un, like unto God. And we are made sons of God by that grace, by adoption. Jesus is the Son of God, not by adoption, but by nature. He is the Son of God from all eternity. He he is a divine person, not a human person. His divine person took up into itself, in the incarnation, a fully human nature. And that was the sanctification of that human nature. Okay, And so that's what he's talking about here. When God consecrated, he whom God consecrated and sent into the world. That's Christ in his human nature. All right So there's a deification that's taking place in Christ and in his, in his human nature, in a reverse way that for us, we're human persons, and we're deified by grace. Christ is a divine person whose humanity is deified by its union with the divine person. And so he says, if that's true for um, you guys, for human beings, that they're called gods, I think I can be called God, OK? So uh, this is the I'm following a lot of the guidance of St Thomas who's interpreting this this way. Um, so Thomas says this in his commentary on St John. Thomas says the word God is is used in three senses. Okay, sometimes it signifies the divine nature itself, and then it's used only in the singular. Okay, so that means God, the divine nature itself. God, the word God is used in that sense. That's one way it's used. Okay. Hear, Israel: The Lord your God is one. At other times, the word "God" is taken in a denominative sense, meaning only it's just by name, okay? And in this way, idols are called gods. All the gods of the Gentiles are demons, says Psalm ninety-six, okay? And sometimes, now this is the third way in which the word "God" is used. Sometimes someone is called a god because of a certain participation in divinity or in some sublime power divinely infused. In this way, even judges are called gods in Scripture. Okay, if the thief is not known, the owner of the house shall be brought to the gods. That's what it says in Exodus 22. So it's talking about judges, but it's using the word Elohim in relation to judges. You shall not speak ill of the gods, that is, of the rulers. This is the way the word God is taken here, meaning he's commenting on the passage in John where Jesus is referring to those to whom the word of God came are called gods. It's taken here when he says, I said you are gods, that is, you share in some divine power superior to the human, and that's grace that's given to us in baptism. Okay, So the word God used in three senses, in its fullest sense means the divine nature itself, in its merely denominative sense, meaning it's not really used truly. Okay, It's used of idols, and then in another sense, kind of like a middle sense, it's used by way of participation. And so that can be true of us who are sanctified through the grace of baptism. He called them gods because they participated in something divine, insofar as they participated in God's word, which was spoken to them. Remember, God's word was spoken to the Israelites. And it talks about Moses' face. It says his face was horned because of his participation in the word of God, in the Latin Vulgate, which is what Thomas would have been reading. For due to God's word, a person obtained some participation in the divine power and purity. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you, Jesus says. And in Exodus we read that the face of Moses shone when he heard the words of God. Okay. So if with Hillary we refer this to Christ insofar as a human nature, the meaning is this. Some people are called gods only because they participate in God's word. How then can you say you are blaspheming? That is, how can you consider blasphemy if that man who is united in person to the word of God... Is called God, and that's talking about just what I was explaining with the divine, with the human nature being deified by its union with the divine person of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Okay, so we're running off here. Okay, this is the problem, guys. So now I just did something where every Jewish, every rabbi would be going, whoo, 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 whoo. Okay. <laughs> But I thought we were Christians here. What's going on here? So what, what is going on? So the problem we're presented now with is that how do we square this idea of the law of life with Paul's theology and the theology of the New Testament in general? We'll cover this in the next class. So if you want to read Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, and then that those verses from John. And this will be up online. So you can download it and get this from whenever you want. And then also I have to say, I have oral surgery. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm going to offer it up, right? we got suffering in our life. Okay, no crown without the cross, okay? I'm just going to be saying that to myself as a drill. It's going, no crown without the cross. No crown without the cross. So I got oral surgery on Monday, and I don't know if I'm going to be in talking shape on Wednesday, Um so I don't know, I think I might have to not do it next Wednesday, guys, is that okay? And I'll put it up, I'll put it, we got the calendar on the website, and I'll, I'll inform you that there's none, uh, that next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after I'll write it all up, so it'll all be on the calendar, okay?